Okay, so as Tim said, the reading is from Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1, um, page 1015, 1015 on the church, in the church Bible. Now, having read this passage this morning, it really lends itself to congregation participation. Um, so I would like us to be the ones who shout. So I'm going to read the first part of verse 9, which says, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted. And then I'd like everyone to join in from the rest of verse 9 to the end of verse 10. Okay, and I suggest that we all read from the screen <laughs> so that we're all reading the same version, including me, because sometimes I find that what I'm reading doesn't necessarily um, go with that. So we're going to start then on at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Please do sit down. And uh, I imagine you closed your Bibles, you weren't keeping them open the whole time we were singing that. So if you want to pick those up again and be ready to, to look at that, we're going to be looking at those verses from Mark chapter 11 together. Uh, but let me pray for us as we uh, prepare to get stuck into that passage. Heavenly Father, as we've just sung, I want to pray that you would assist me to proclaim the honours of your name and that you would assist all of us to hear what you are saying here in your word, to see the Lord Jesus more and more for who he is and to receive him as king. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, some people do know how to make an entrance, don't they? Whether it's you're watching a film and the, the action hero bursts in through the ceiling or a performer takes to the stage to great applause. There's something about it, isn't there? A moment of arrival which we look forward to. Most of the times we arrive somewhere, it isn't a very big deal. We just turn up where we're going, work out where we're supposed to be and sit down. Uh, this morning, none of us were trying to make a big appearance, were we, with all eyes on us. If you were trying to do that, I apologise, I didn't notice. Um, 
But sometimes arriving is a big deal, isn't it? So think of like the bride on her wedding day. You know, we've all seen her before lots of times. She's been in that church lots of times, but there's something about that particular entrance walking down the aisle that we know this is a significant moment. It's different to every other time she's ever walked in the room. It's very deliberate. It's very thought through. And in the Bible reading that uh, we read together, um, we encounter a grand entrance like that as Jesus enters Jerusalem to great fanfare. He's arriving in the big smoke, and he's not just coming in like any other tourist. He's arriving like a conquering king coming to his capital city. He's not just wandering casually into town. He's entering in a very particular, planned way so that we would all pick up that the ultimate king has come. That's what we're supposed to be learning from this, that the ultimate king has come. And everything that happens in this is to make that point. This isn't just a a sort of last-minute city break. He's been planning this trip for a very long time. Everything's been building up. So uh, chapter 10, verse 32, talks about how they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And there is a sense that everything has been building up to this. It's the first time in Mark's gospel Jesus has been to Jerusalem. Lots of times we've heard about people from Jerusalem coming out to see him, wherever he's been, whether that's interested citizens or hostile, skeptical leaders. They've come out to see him. But now, as we're entering the last week of Jesus' earthly life, he finally goes there. And everything for the rest of Mark's gospel is going to happen in and around Jerusalem. In chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus has made it clear that when this happens, when he gets there, it is going to be a showdown. He says, we are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, if you knew that's what is going to happen to you when you arrive in Jerusalem, would you just not go? Or if you absolutely had to go, you would sort of try and sneak in with as little fuss as possible. But not Jesus. He's deliberately coming in, making a grand entrance. He's not afraid of what's coming. He's walking into it with his eyes wide open because this is what he's come to do. He's come to die for us. Earlier that morning, he'd been in Jericho. Him and his disciples had been leaving Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. And in verse 46, it says that there was a large crowd with him. They're all heading out of town. And as they're heading off, he meets blind Bartimaeus. If you remember that, we last looked at Mark before the summer. We're picking up again. He met him on his way out towards Jerusalem. And he healed this man of his blindness. And we're told in verse 52 that Bartimaeus then joined the rabble following Jesus down the road. So there's now quite a big troop of them. They're all heading in. They've gone about 18 miles now to get from Jericho. And they arrive on the outskirts of the city. Verse 1 of our passage says, uh, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So here's a map. Uh, I didn't have a big enough map. If we wanted to put Jericho on it, we'd be somewhere over here. Uh, But they've travelled all that way, and they've now come right to the edge of the city. They're less than a mile now, all day travelling, and he stops. 
And instead of carrying on on foot, he makes some pretty strange travel arrangements. So verse 1 says, Jesus said to his disciples, he, sorry, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, untie it and bring it here. So he's saying, right, we're here, I want you to wander along, go there, pick up a donkey, wander around, bring it back. That's already a little bit odd. But really the puzzle is, why get a donkey now? Why get a donkey now? If we zoom out a little bit on this map, we zoom out. Right, that's Jericho to Bethany, okay? That's going to take them absolutely hours. This is Bethany to Jerusalem. Just that tiny little bit. And it's that little bit that he wants transport. Imagine you'd been walking all the way to Wem from Wrexham. And to get here in time for church, you would have had to leave about half two this morning. And you arrive at the Welcome to Wem sign, and at that point you phone for a taxi for the final half mile. See, this isn't about saving his legs. He's making a point, I am the king, so I need to enter the city like a king. Uh, To which you might go, well, how is that entering like a king? How is this... King. Well, there's lots of little subtle ways. First off, he's, he's exercising his right as a king to commandeer an animal. So if you've ever seen like a, an action film and um, the bad guy's getting away and there's a cop kind of runs into the highway with his badge and says, LAPD, I'm commandeering this vehicle. And then they get in the car and zoom off. Kings could do that with horses and stuff. So when he just comes in and goes, there's a horse over there, I'd like that. That's a king kind of thing to do. Then there's how he gets hold of it. He sends disciples, go, go and fetch it for him. And if anyone asks, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. So he's anticipating that someone's going to go, uh, what are you doing? That's not your donkey. Like if you saw a stranger going onto your neighbor's driveway and they start trying the handles of the car, you might as well go, um, excuse me, <laughs> what, what are you doing? And they say, oh, no, we're not stealing it, we're borrowing it. The Lord needs it. Oh, wow, if the Lord needs it, fair enough. This is showing something of Jesus' real authority, even when he's acting through his disciples. And notice how exactly what he commanded matches what happens. So he tells them to go, and they go. He tells them to find a cult, and they do. He says, when you untie it, someone's going to challenge you, which they do. He says what to say in response, and they say it. And it works like a charm. In verse 6, they answered him as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Now, some people say this, this must have been a, a prearranged thing, must have organized in advance with the owner, kind of pre-booking a hire car, that kind of thing. But then why aren't they expecting it to be borrowed? Why not say, oh no, we sorted this out already, the, the owner, just go and ask the owner. We already, no, it's not that. This is the action of a king who could just point at something and go, the Lord needs that. And that's enough of a reason to let him have it. How on earth he knows it's there, how he knows what they're going to say, well, as one commentator put it, it shows hints of Jesus' unusual knowledge and power. You can say, you know, down the road there's a thing, do it. Someone's going to say, you know, how does he know that? And then there's the choice of animal when it says a colt which no one has ever ridden. It's never been broken in. It's never been taken for a test drive. The phrasing of that sounds a lot like various Old Testament verses 
about when a beast is going to be used for a very special purpose to serve God. So there's a time, uh, we looked at it earlier this year in, in 1 Samuel, when they needed a wagon to be pulled to bring the Ark of the Covenant. You can't just pick that up. They need a special thing. And it has to be a beast that's never been used. There's lots of times like that. It's got to be something that's never been used because this is a very special thing. The Ark of the Covenant, thick with gold. This is God's throne, if you like, in the temple. And now we've got even more precious cargo than that. God himself needs a ride into town. When King David made his son Solomon king, in 1 Kings 1, he makes sure that they take him out east of the city, anoint him as king, and have him ride in on a donkey. And David says, blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon, and then march into the city and have him sit on the throne. And Solomon does it. He comes in on this donkey and everybody shouts and plays music until the ground shook with the sound, we're told. We pick up all these little signals, just these subtle little ways as Jesus is coming in on a donkey to say, I am David's rightful heir. The one who's been promised is me. The ultimate king has come. There's so many hopes resting on him, so much awaiting the arrival that he doesn't want us to miss that that is who he is. And so he deliberately fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Lots of the ways Jesus fulfills the prophecies are sort of accidental, if you like, where he's born or, or things like that. But this he does very self-consciously and deliberately. Most obviously, Zechariah chapter 9. It's written hundreds of years before Jesus to the people of Judah. They'd been exiled to Babylon. Now they'd come home and everything was still not right. The country's in tatters. They've got no king. They've got enemies on every side. And then Zechariah 9, verse 9, God gives them a promise. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. They're being promised that one day a king is going to come to snap all the weapons and bring in peace. Who's not just going to rule Judah, he's going to rule to the ends of the earth. And as Zechariah 9 goes on, we're told this king is going to be God freeing the prisoners, restoring their fortunes, saving his people. That's what we want to happen, isn't it? That's what we're desperate for. Well, then we need this king. We need him. It's really important we recognize him. How are we going to know it's him? Well, see, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. That is why Jesus stops before getting to Jerusalem. He's self-consciously entering like that king who'd been promised. We mustn't miss this. We mustn't miss this. We must stop looking for somebody else who's going to come and sort our lives out. Jesus has come. Now, this event uh, is often called the triumphal entry. Um, it's not called that in the Bible, but triumphant triumphal entries were a thing. If, if, if you were an emperor and you won a big battle, you would return home to your capital city from the war riding your big chariot and there'd be a parade and soldiers and musicians and all the prisoners of war and the conquering hero would come home into the city, 
big applause on the ancient equivalent of a tank or a, or a swanky kind of limousine. He'd be there with his big muscular war horse coming in. Or think, think about King Charles at his coronation. You got That was a bit of a parade, wasn't it? Quite a lot of pageantry and carriages and gold. And here we have another triumphal entry. And it's kind of like a parody of a triumphal entry. As in comes the king on a baby donkey. This is King Charles coming to Westminster Abbey on a push bike. <laughs> Tim Keller put it like this. Here was Jesus Christ, the king of authoritative, miraculous power, riding into town on a steed fit for a child or a hobbit. It's a way of telling us Jesus is not like the other kings. He's not like every other leader. He doesn't throw his weight around. He doesn't show off or lord it over others. Even in his moment of unveiling, if you like, he chooses to come humbly. Yes, he is righteous and victorious, as Zechariah says, but he's also lowly. It's a symbol of his humility, his everyday, ordinary approachability. He's come to get rid of the war horse, and so he rides in this lowly animal of peacetime. If you've ever been let down or bossed around by leaders or managers or anybody with an inflated sense of their own self-importance, it's very easy to get cynical, isn't it, of anybody who comes in claiming to be Lord. Well, Jesus isn't like that. Jesus isn't like that. He's the king that we need. He's the one who balances perfectly every good thing that we want from a leader. Justice and mercy. Power and gentleness, truth and grace, sovereignty, trust in God. We sung it earlier, didn't we? Meekness and majesty together as the king comes humbly, lowly, riding on a donkey. This whole book of Mark began a long time ago, right in the very first verse, saying, this is the story of the Messiah. This is, I'm going to tell you about the king. And so far, that has been kept quite hush-hush. There's been people who've worked it out, and sometimes Jesus has said, all right, all right, keep it to yourself for now. Keep it to yourself for now. But now that's out of the window, isn't it? As he goes, right, it's time to go to the capital city and say, I'm the king. It's time to acknowledge it. That's a, a shockingly political move, isn't it? It's a bold religious claim. I'm going to march into the temple and say, it's me. If you or I attempted that, we'd be laughed out of town, wouldn't we? Or ignored. Or sent to prison for treason. But what happens to Jesus? They take him seriously. Eventually, he is going to be tried and executed, exactly for claiming to be king like this. But to start with, the response that he gets is exactly what it should be. It's exactly how we should react as well. As all the people rejoice in the king. They rejoice. They celebrate. They recognize who he is. This is the ultimate king who's come. And so they rejoice in that. They understand what's going on. They're picking up what he's laying down, if you like. And they show that by laying down what they've just picked up. They, verse 8, they spread their cloaks on the ground. Many others spread branches they'd cut from the fields. This is a royal reception, sort of rolling out the red carpets, treating him as a VIP. This is a man who shouldn't just walk on the dirty street like a commoner. Let's all take our coats and jackets off and lay them down so his donkey can walk on top of them. 
Again, this is a, this is a king thing. So uh, 2 Kings 9, Jehu is anointed king of Israel, and the crowds, we said, they quickly took off their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps, blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. That's what's happening here. Instead of shouting, who on earth do you think you are? They say, Jesus is king. He's the king. Like the people of Wem last weekend lining the streets to watch the carnival parade. A slightly different route, this one, as he slowly walks in past the Garden of Gethsemane, walks in all the way in. There are people gladly welcoming him as he comes, cheering, waving as he marches on. They're not just looking on just out of morbid curiosity. They're pledging their allegiance to him. Just listen to their words, verse 9 and 10. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. These are people rejoicing in the king. The word Hosanna, we, we sometimes sing it in church. We sung it a few times already. Hosanna, that kind of thing. Do we know what it means? We actually know what that means? It means save. Save is a kind of cry for help. Save us. And it's a shout of praise. For example, my beloved Tottenham Hotspur. We have a new goalkeeper, Vicario. Um, the other week, Man United... Um, Robin's not here, it's okay, I'm supposed to talk about this. Man United had a free kick at the edge of the box. Everyone is shouting, save! Save, please, save it! And then he did. Save of the month, I think it's going to be. It was fantastic. And so instead, they all shouted, Save! What a save. That's what Hosanna means. It's both those things. It's both kind of going, save, please, and going, what a save. Isn't that fantastic? When we sing it to God, Hosanna, we're saying, you're the saviour. You're the one who's going to save us. What a save. And that's what the people shout when Jesus comes to town. Save us. We praise you, King Jesus. Are we shouting that? Are we shouting that out? Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, thank you for saving me. We talked earlier about making a grand entrance. We don't get much more of a grand entrance than when a boxer comes into the ring. They've got their big sort of hype music coming on, the entrance music, something to pump them up like Eye of the Tiger or something as they're, they're sort of heading out. Jesus has some walk-on music as well, except it's Psalm 118. That's the music he chooses to come out to. That's what they're quoting here. They're going, yeah, that's what it's about. Let me just read a few verses from Psalm 118. It says, I will give thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. And here comes the quote. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. We hear what they're singing, the music he's sort of chosen for his, his incoming fight. <laughs> Lord, save us. Hosanna. 
this procession, talks about a kind of carnival of praise. People coming on their way to the temple with boughs in their hands. They go, right, quick, go cut down some branches. And they, they get involved in that. They're rejoicing. For centuries, people have been singing this song about the blessing that was available to everyone who came trusting in the name of the Lord. And now we see there's a bit of a double meaning here. There isn't just blessing for those who come to God in his name. There is blessing and honor for the one person who comes from God in his name. Jesus is he who comes. That's a, that's a, a king title as well. Blessed is him. And blessed is anyone who comes to him. When we get to verse 10 of our, of our passage, they're not quoting the psalm anymore. This is just sort of spontaneous stuff. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. It's going to be so good. Just earlier that morning, blind Bartimaeus might have been blind, but he could see that he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's who this Jesus is. And the evening draws in, the crowds again are saying, this is the king, that David's rightful heirs, they rejoice in him. Are we going to rejoice in him? Are we going to re recognize who he is and say, oh, blessed is his kingdom. I'm so glad I'm a part of it. But we might say, well, how, how can we rejoice? How can we rejoice with life the way it is? There's so much going on. How, how can we rejoice? Well, the people of Zechariah's day had a lot to complain about. Life was very, very hard and dangerous, very disappointing. It's probably the big thing for them. God had brought them home, but still they're saying, is this it? And God says, no, this is not as good as it gets. It's going to get so much better when your king comes. So rejoice. Rejoice now. They had to wait, but rejoice now. Those first believers uh, on that Palm Sunday, if you want to call it that, they were cheering for Jesus. They were rejoicing. He'd finally come, but he didn't sort everything out straight away, did he? Before he rules the world in peace, he's going to be rejected. But they still rejoiced that day. And then there's us. Jesus is now king, isn't he? He's enthroned. He's in heaven. Everything's not right, though, is it? We're still suffering. We still face trouble. We still wait. The king has come. But we're waiting for him to come again. We're waiting for his second triumphal entry. And this should give us a little glimpse of that, that day when it won't just be a few hundred people on the way in on a little dusty road, Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus is the king. On that day, the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend to the ends of the earth. And so we rejoice now. We, we go public in our allegiance for him now, like they did. We let everybody know, yes, he is my king. Because our king will come. It probably would have been quite easy on that day to get a bit sort of swept up in the excitement of the whole thing. Quite easy to rejoice, isn't it? When the wind's at your back, the crowds are on your side, the man is being praised. I can join in with that. But this road that he's on is going to keep going in and out the other side of Jerusalem to the cross. That is where he's going. If we're going to follow him on that day, we've got to keep following him. He's there to be killed before he's crowned. That is how he's going to Hosanna, if you like. That's how he's going to save us. 
And not everybody would welcome him. Just like today, a lot of people didn't rejoice. It's not all ticker tape parades and, and psalm singing. In fact, this little bit ends with a bit of an anticlimax. And if you saw that in verse 11, it's a bit of a damp squib. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I could show him on the map, sort of quietly walking back again. Last weekend, we went to get Bram some school uniform. And by the time we got there, the shop was shut. And all the way into Shrewsbury, all the way home again. Is that what's happening here? <laughs> well, no. He's able to get into the temple and have a look around. But there's no rapturous applause. There's no big welcome. Instead, he's having a bit of a recce. He's sort of sussing the place out. And he's not impressed. It would be more like if we'd arrived at the uniform shop and it was open, but it was a disgusting mess. Or the boss of the shop turns up, sees the state of it and goes, right, I'm coming back tomorrow and we're going to sort this out. That's what Jesus does. He walks all the way back the way he came, ready to fight another day. Next week we're going to see how explosive it was when the boss does come back to the shop. But in the meantime, it's a little nudge to us. He has this great procession and then sort of nothing. Not everyone's going to welcome him. Not everyone's going to see. Will we? Are we going to accept him as king? Are we going to lay down our cloaks? Are we going to honor him? Are we going to gladly take our place among the people praising him? The king has come. The king will come. That will be a grand entrance, won't it? So we rejoice even now. Let me pray for us that we would. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the many ways in which he proved it and showed it that he is the promised one, he who is coming, that he has come. Help us to rejoice and help us to look forward with joy for when our King comes again. Please would that fill us with hope and joy and perseverance as we press on in the days to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.